Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. You know that Tim and I are consultants and we've done lots of projects for sales leaders and for marketing leaders to help them achieve their business objectives. And in many cases, we've helped them exceed their business objectives. And that's that's pretty cool. It is cool. It's very cool. And and sometimes we've done consulting gigs for company presidents when the sales leaders and the marketing leaders couldn't <laughs> figure out how to get along, right? Ah, yes, Tim. <laughs> we, we have done that. And when sales and marketing don't see eye to eye, that's a problem. And that takes some working out. So what we've seen as practitioners ourselves really boils down to two main things. First, people who work in the sales and marketing department don't really understand each other's business to the degree that's necessary. Yeah. And, and they don't understand that sales and marketing need to work together to acquire and retain customers in a very integrated and collaborative way that embodies both disciplines' insights. And secondly, the objectives of these two departments are often in competition, or at least they're misaligned. They are running in two separate or different directions. Yeah, yeah. And and for both of us, but suffice it to say, your work at the Lantern Group has brought lots of assignments with clients where individual goals and company goals and department policies don't always line up. It happens more frequently than I'd like to think, right? And so much of the time, Tim, it wouldn't have been a problem if they were more customer focused to start with. And that brings us to our guest, Andrea Belk Olson. Aside from being a fellow Hawkeye, go Hawks, from the University of <laughs> Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa, Andrea is the author of What to Ask, How to Learn What Customers Need But Don't Tell You, and that was released in May of 2022. Yeah, Andrea is a an experienced business leader, speaker, coach, and TEDx presenter. She's also very familiar with the work of leading behavioral scientists, and we wanted to talk to her about her views of the real world or in the wild, as they say, <laughs> and get some tips on how to build more customer-centric organizations. We talked about some classic best practices like getting more of your employees in front of your customers to some more novel thinking about NPS scores and customer feedback surveys. Yeah, it, it was cool. And of course, the dreaded customer satisfaction measure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, the evil NPS. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, well, with that, we'd like to invite you to sit back with your best Iowa oak barreled customer feedback beverage and enjoy our conversation with Andrea Belk Olson. Andrea Belk Olson, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Hey, thanks for having me. It is our pleasure to have you, and we're going to get started with the speed round. So I want to know, do you prefer coffee or tea? Oh, both. It depends on the, it depends on the context. Okay? Ooh. So, oh, context matters. Okay. Context really matters. So, you know, coffee, it's like kind of your regular day, get up in the morning type of thing. Tea is usually, if it's late at night, you know, you want something low caffeine, or if you just don't feel well. Right, ah. under the water, but you want some kind of hot liquid, soothing. So, you know, you, you put the lemon and honey in it, and you're yeah. all set. There you go. All right, yeah. all right, cool. All right, so this is an Iowa City uh, question here for you. So, okay. Mickey's, the Deadwood, or the Airliner? Preference for a Tuesday night? You know, just going out. Oh man, I I go with the Deadwood. 
I go with the yeah. Deadwood oh. every time because it's, you know, you don't really, I mean, you don't really have the college sheen in the traditional sense. And if you say Tuesday, you know, college, college kids go on every day of the week. Yes. I'm assuming we're talking about in season, right? During school. So you kind of <laughs> want to get something where there's going to be a deal, right? It's an off day. Uh, it's going to be an eclectic crowd and it's just going to be really relaxed. So it has been a while since I've been back drinking at in, in Iowa City. And so I had to do a, a little quick research to make sure that those bars were still open and, and, and around after after the pandemic. But those were the bars, like some of the bars that I went to when I was there. And I would have to say the Deadwood, as you, you said, eclectic. It is by far one of the most eclectic bars ever. So if anybody ever gets to Iowa City, I, I would highly recommend actually any three of them get the conglomeration at Mickey's, you know, the airliner is your typical frat bar, I guess. I don't know, but it, it, it might have changed. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, uh, right. but the Deadwood is definitely the, the, the eclectic kind of really cool place where you get to see some characters. Oh, totally. Wow. We're down memory lane already. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Uh, okay. Andrea, the book is incredibly well-researched. Uh, you've got 13 pages of bibliography. You have a lot of musical references. So my, my speed round question is, who would you prefer to have dinner with? Your favorite researcher or musician or athlete? You know, that's tough. And I'm going to give you two answers to that. Fair enough. The first one is none of them. Mm. Because, oh, because, you know, it's it's always just a little depressing to meet your hero. Mm. You know, your idea in your mind of who this person is, because you don't know really them intimately, you know, might not match up to who they are, you know, in real life. So I almost want to keep that imagination, that that concept in my mind. I don't want to diminish it by actually meeting someone. But if I did have a chance to meet someone, I would meet Freddie Mercury from Queen. Oh. Because he's just, you know, and we're talking about eclectic. I mean, just fascinating person. And I think he'd be just uh, a pleasure to chat with. Cool. Cool. Agreed. Agreed. He, he would be a fascinating guy. Okay. All right. All right. Last, last speed round question. True or false? Understanding your customer preferences means you also understand customer purchasing behavior. No. I mean... Not really, right? It can, but purchasing behaviors is really looking at the past, right? And, you know, past behaviors aren't a real clear predictor of what future behaviors are going to be. So, you know, does it give you a vague idea? Yeah, but it's something that I wouldn't bank on, right? You know, you ask a friend to, to do something and then you try to, you know, ask in the future again, the same thing, you know, you can't guarantee that behavior is going to happen. And that's just, you know, in your everyday. So, you know, these, the mass of customers that you're dealing with, you know, their, their past behavior does not predict their future actions very well. Yeah. Okay. So the book is, is called what to ask. And, and we know that asking customers like what feature would you like is kind of a worthless question. And you've got great examples. I always love the Henry Ford, you know, mm -hmm. story about, but would have asked them, they would have told me faster horses, cool. you know, I mean, the, the, these are, these are great, but what should marketers be thinking about to try to actually understand customers wants and needs? What, what, what should be in there? What should be the mindset? What should be the approach that they take to really understand? You know, and, and that's a great question because the book is really about unraveling that ball. And mm -hmm. it's, we always want a very simple, linear, prescriptive answer to, to all of our problems, right? Tell me how to do this. I'm going to go do it. And then my problems will be solved, right? But if you think about... 
And isn't that why we're here today? I mean, it, it, yeah. <laughs> give us the four step process and we're just going to go out and do that. There you go. But, you know, I, I like to think of analogy of like a, a veterinarian. Okay. And let's say you go to vet school and you learn how to be a vet and then you go into practice, right? And you start seeing things in real life in those contexts that, you know, apply to what you learn from an academic perspective, but it's very different when you're applying it in real life right? There are, there's creativity that you have to apply. There's things that you have to look beyond the surface, right? You can't just say, you know, A equals B and therefore C, right? It's much more of an art. And it's the same with understanding customers. You know, if you are 20 steps removed from the customer and simply just sending out a survey, getting some data back and saying, this is what people think, you don't know customers. You really don't know jack about customers, right? If you want to know customers, you need to know people. And to know people, you need to engage with them. And that's just really the fundamental step one of the entire process is you have to get yourself closer to customers and see the context in which they live and the challenges that they have and how they process information, how they assess things. And you'll start seeing patterns. But again, it is like an art. You have to learn this skill. It's not something that you can say, I did A, I did B, and therefore out pops my, my kick. Uh, well, when you, you know, you're talking about uh, learning and engaging with, with this customer, you're not, just to be clear, you're not talking about the chief people officer, the chief customer officer, like going out and, and figuring this out. You have a broader definition of what companies are, are a broader belief of how companies ought to be engaging with their customers, right? It's more than just one person or one little department, right? Well, yeah, I, I totally agree because one person is one perspective, right? And you're not going to see everything through one lens. You need actually everyone in the organization to be exposed to customers, right? And you think, well, okay, how's accounting going to be exposed to customers? You know what? They can go on trips with sales to meet customers. They can sit and listen. They can ask questions, right? Because the more people you get involved, the more perspectives you have. And different personalities are going to see different things in different people. And when you amalgamate that mass amount of information, think about you had uh, 500 employees and each employee went and visited customers, you know, twice a month. How many data points are you going to get? That's way less expensive than hiring an outside research firm to send out, you know, postcards or do field interviews with, you know, a hundred customers. That's not the same thing. And you'll uncover so many other little things in regards to just your business and daily service outside of seeking big innovations that is going to improve your operations on top of it. So why don't companies do that? I mean, it's it, it, as you said, it's it's cheaper. It's probably more effective as you talk about, but it's also an element that probably provides from an employee perspective. That's kind of fun. Right. I, I, I would love to be able to, to get out of be sitting behind my desk with, a, you know, a spreadsheet and, and a, a calculator here and go out and meet those customers. Why aren't companies doing that? Oh, well, I mean, fundamentally, if I'm going to simplify it, it really comes down to two things. One is fear. Right. We don't want to expose things to customers that maybe are going to make us look bad. Right. Mm. We don't want uh, an employee out there that's going to ask a question that's awkward, you know. Or, you know, reveal something that's, you know, underneath within our company they don't want them to know. 
or, you know, we're just afraid that we're going to bug them, bother them, and therefore, you know, we're going to lose business, right? And none of these things really are founded in, in logic or facts. It's just this emotional perception of, well, this could happen, so therefore I'm going to do nothing, right? And the business is moving along fine. It's not dramatically growing, dramatically shrinking. It should be okay. We just let sleeping dogs lie. Mm. But the second part is that when you get this qualitative information, right, you get all these anecdotes. It's like, how do you digest all of that into something that's actionable, right? How do you weigh and measure those things where customer A said this, customer B said that? How do I know which one's important? How do I know which one I can monetize? How do I know which one really fits our organization? Uh, am I setting an expectation where the customer now thinks we need to deliver that and I can't? So it's easier just to kind of sit back and be quiet. And and these are really the core reasons why people don't do it. Well, and I think there's an interesting piece that you talked about there in that last part, which is how do you synthesize all that data in there? Whereas hiring a marketing research firm, you have a report at the, a report at the end, or if that if you have that one department that's doing it. One of the things that I've seen quite often, which is really an interesting piece, and would love your thoughts on this, is that uh, you get a marketing department within an organization. And they're going out and doing all this marketing research and they're, they're bringing that back in. And then they're sharing that information with new programs or processes that are required by sale. And then mm -hmm. sales comes back and says, that's not how my customers think. That's not how they work. What? I, no way am I going to do that, right? That's like, this is the new... Here's, here's the new protocol that we have to do when wow. we're going in and talking with customers and they're going, I don't know where you got that from. Right. Do you see that? Do you hear that? Oh man, I, I can't tell you how, I mean, I'm going to try to narrow it down to just a few stories on this. Marketing gets such disrespect oftentimes, right? Because they're the, you know, they're going to, they're the graphic design department. They're the make it pretty department. Uh, you know, they're the ones that really don't understand customers. Sales knows the customers. They have the relationships of the most important, you know, department in the organization. And what happens is marketing tries to insert themselves and then they just look like idiots, right? And I'm I'm gonna tell you, there was one time I was heading up a global marketing department and they they showed me all the marketing materials they made. Like this is all the information about the products and these little sheets and oh we have digital versions of it too. Yay, wonderful. Right. But none of them had ever been in sales. Yeah. Problem number one. None of them had ever been in sales. When you have to talk to a stranger and you're trying to kind of pitch yourself, you're trying to kind of pitch a company, you're trying to understand them, it is the most nerve wracking, scary thing. I don't care how pretty that brochure is. It doesn't, it's not a shield. It does not help you. And when I went out into the field, I actually, you know, shadowed a whole, every single salesperson that was at least in the US proper at that time. And, and watch them talk with customers. Just watch them talk with customers. And one guy, it was brilliant. He had actually made a binder. And he, this was kind of a industrial equipment. And he went and took pictures before the thing was installed and after the thing was installed. And then, you know, the location and the date, right? Yeah. And, and what was installed. That's it. That was his sales tool. And he had pages and pages and pages of these, you know, very simple, these are photos, this is what it looked like before, this is what it looked like after, this is what we did. And he could tell a story about each of those. It wasn't the product specs, it wasn't, you know, the, the features or, you know, the benefits or the cost. 
he was solving a problem. And so he wanted to illustrate that problem in a visual way for his prospective customers. And it was great. And it was way cheaper than putting together all these materials, right? So, I mean, it's those obvious disconnects that I think put marketing in a bad place because they are so far from the customer, regrettably, when they're the ones supposed to be communicating to the customer. Your story strikes me as a a great example of how so many sales organizations, especially, uh, operate uh, because they're they're oftentimes distributed across wide geographic areas, and they're not sharing even among themselves some of these best practices, some of these really great ideas. Oh, that's a secret. That's that's my secret sauce. Right. Right. Anybody else? No way. And and it feels like it's such a loss to the organization collectively to not engage the best and brightest minds uh, to share their secret sauce. Uh, and of course, you have you have there's a whole bunch of cultural things. We'll talk about culture in a little bit. But it does seem like a big loss when not even the salespeople are talking to each other about what works the best and how should we do this. But I'm I'm completely sympathetic to this idea that that too many times marketing is a step behind and two steps away from what is actually going on. What, what should they be doing? What, what would, you know, what, what's your recommendation on, on what marketing ought to be doing? You know, I, I think they need to, you know, put their, their concerns aside for a moment, right? The concerns about, you know, are we being recognized? Are we being respected in the organization? Are we just to make a pretty department and stop and say, what do we not know? What do we really not know? And, you know, marketing is in service to the customer, but they're also in service to the rest of the organization. And I believe this is for every department, right? You're in service to the customer, but you are in service to the other people and departments you work with. And so they need to get out of the building. And and that's not my quote. That's Steve Blank. I'm just going to give credit to him. But they have to get out of the building. They have to talk to customers. And maybe you just start with, you know, a couple salespeople that are kind enough to say, hey, yeah, you can shadow me. I'm, I'm good with it. Others might bristle at it and that's fine. But go in and absorb, listen, watch, take notes, ask questions of the salesperson afterwards. Try to understand the patterns, right? And it's kind of using this what to ask framework to understand the context in which they work the context in which the customer lives in and and where those two meet, kind of a Venn diagram type situation. And then then assess what the needs are or the potential needs are. Don't don't assume before you have that conversation what's needed. Oh well, we need a brochure. Why? Are you sure? Do you how do you know? Who wants a brochure? You know, and and what how is it going to be used? You know, so maybe something that, you know, I don't know, like like we said, like the picture book might be way more effective uh, and something that can be customized from person to person. And this is the type of mindset that sales or sorry, that marketing needs to shift to and mm-hmm. not as kind of our value is based on the output that we make. So Andrea, I, I love this kind of thought that we're going through of, of getting closer to the customer. I, I, I will, I, I do want to though, go back and make sure that we're not denigrating marketing too much, because there are some times, at least in, in some of my experiences too, where marketing comes in, they've done some analytics, they've done some research and they say, look, these are, here's some really powerful data points. But again, mm-hmm. then you get sales who says, nope, that's not, not for me. 
right. because they're stuck in their status quo. They're, they're stuck. This is the way I've always done it. It's scary for me to go and try something new, even though the data is saying, look, if you go and you use this brochure or if you go uh, to this new customer who you haven't talked to before, as opposed mm -hmm. to sticking with those customers that you continually have, have built relationships with and it's easy. So how do you break down the difference between those times where they're where they are just as as Tim said, you know, a, a step away or two steps away and and a step behind versus when maybe some of the information is is actually valuable and should be used and yet it isn't because there are some, you know, psychological factors of fear or other factors that get in the way of sales actually um, applying those. Well, I mean, I think this kind of spins back to kind of some concepts from behavioral science, right? You know, and and there's these kind of, you know, mental heuristics that are going to stop someone from adopting something or accepting change, right? That's that's common. I think we're all kind of fairly aware of some of those things. But the other part is, you know, you have to ask yourself, and, and again, I love marketing. I've been in marketing for years. I headed a you know global marketing team across 10 different business units. So I have nothing against marketing. However, I would say that marketing likes to solve problems that don't exist. Mm -hmm. And so when you say, I have this data point, Okay, let's say you have a really good data point. The question is one, and marketing should know this, but we get we, we get ahead of our skis on it, right? Is but who's the audience? Who's this for? We see something and sometimes we go, oh, this is for sales. Is it for sales or is this something that's a bigger impact on the operational strategy of the organization? Right? Is it a new, you know, industry or target market focus, right? Because you see something growing in the data. Right. Or you see things that are very tactical and you kind of want to solidify the brand and say everyone needs to operate the same. But what makes great salespeople is who they are as individuals. And so when you try to tamp that down and say, but we have data that says this brochure works every time. Is that really true? Right. You, you, you are looking at the problem in the wrong way and you have to look at the problem in the sense of, hey, what are we trying to communicate to the customer? And that is not going to be, and I'm sorry, I'm using your example, in one physical form, one medium. So, you know, I'd argue that we get attached to a data point and then have a really hard time dissecting how it can be used in the right way to grow the organization, which at the, at the end of the day, bottom line is that that's what marketing is there to do. Yeah, I love that. Um, thank you for uh, speaking so lucidly about that. There are all kinds of issues that we could tackle. One of the things, uh, and I'm going to interrupt myself on this, uh, because if for listeners who like books with snarky footnotes, this is a book to buy. <laughs> just, oh my God, that's great. I, just, I'm thrilled. We are fans of snarky footnotes. That's just kind of our thing. Uh, and so, uh, and 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 one of the things that you you take aim at are measurement tools. It, it's not to say that NPS or customer journey mapping are inherently bad, but there's definitely some shortcomings. And I was wondering if you should, if you could talk a little bit about what are the kind of measurements that we should be looking for. Again, what what are the ways of of measuring a customer relationship that would be valuable? You know. I I'm not trying to be obtuse, but it all depends on what you're trying to do, 
Right. And so it's like, how do I measure, how do I measure the quality of a friendship? Right. Well, it can depends on the friendship, right? Is this a business relationship? Is it an intimate partnership? Is it, you know, a casual friend? And all of those have different values. All of those have different roles and functions, right? And they all can be important and utilitarian for your life, right? Not all customers are the same, right? There's going to be those customers that are passionate advocates. There's going to be ones that are just tourists, right? They come in and out. There's going to be ones that are incredibly fickle. And as an organization, you need to decide where you want to target first and foremost, right? Who are the people that you want to go after and and have them become your intimate friend, if you will? And then it's a matter of saying, okay, what are they looking for? What are their needs? And we need to adapt what we're doing, delivering, offering to meet those needs. And it's not just, you know, I want this as a PDF versus a printed document. We're talking about real contextual needs based on the challenges they face. And this is critical in B2B, right? We think we're selling products. We think we're selling solutions. I hate this stupid, we're selling solutions. Why would you sell anything else? Uh, of course, it's a solution. Um, but you have to look at the, the person that you're selling to has a job, right? And unless they're just simply a buyer for a company, and even if they are a buyer, they still have a job. What are the challenges that they face in their job? And it's not just acquiring this product, right? What's the entire context? What are the other related problems that this product may touch, right? Looking at the big picture. And then that's where the door cracks open for opportunity to say, ah, there's something new here that we could do. It could be as small as simplifying or automating a process, but it could be as big as saying, actually, we need to change this product or add a new product or bundle something or look at a whole new aspect of the market we never considered before. One of the things you talk about in the book is this idea, uh, 3W ideation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that is and what the importance of that is? Yes. So uh, 3W ideation, you know, I, and again, as I mentioned, I really don't like a, you know, a four or five step process. <laughs> but we have a three step or three W's here. <laughs> well, you know, it needs some type of framework. I guess. It does. It's hard to yeah. explain otherwise. But it's just really meant to change the way you think, right? I don't believe that I have some magic sauce that I can, you know, conjure up some innovative solution to every business problem. But I believe that you can start getting people to think differently, no pun intended on Steve Jobs, but think differently about how they perceive customer problems. And I'll, and I'll give you kind of a little bit more example on this, this 3W concept. You know, it really starts with the first W, which is why, right? And, and that goes back to what problem are we trying to solve? And the example I use in the book is establishing what I call a query right? A why query. It's the, you know, what are we trying to solve and who are we trying to solve it for? So the example I give is why would millennials want to get a mortgage? Because the mortgage is the product you're selling. Okay. Let's say you're a bank, you're selling a mortgage. So why would millennials want a mortgage? Well, at first you might say, well, because they want to buy a house, right? I was getting ahead of myself. There. <laughs> but Really, the, the query is intended to say, step back and look at what the catalysts would be. And the context would be 
for that leap. So this is the, the second part, this second W, which is what? Okay. So maybe they are having a baby. Maybe they just moved to town. Uh, maybe uh, they got a new job, right? Now, if you think about that bigger picture, what can you do as an organization that ties to the product you're selling, that mortgage, that creates new value for those specific contexts and challenges those customers are facing, right? So this whole construct is intended to help you shift your mindset. And then the third W is what I call wow or wow hypothesis, which is saying, okay, go through that query, go through a brainstorming exercise of all those contexts, right, that someone could have for your target audience, and then create a hypothesis, right? So we believe that millennials, that people that have a new baby, um, want a mortgage and are looking for X, Y, and Z. That's our theory. And the point of that is now you have something to go out and talk to customers with. This is what most organizations do backwards. They say, we need customer feedback, go talk to them. But why? What are we trying to learn? What are we trying to find out? And it's either 200,000 foot, how do you feel? Do you like what we're doing? What do you think about the competition? Or the other end of the spectrum, very tactical. Do you like this feature, right? Do you want this to be red or blue? Nothing in the middle about what their problems are and what challenges they're facing. So the process isn't kind of that one, two, three, four. It's the, how do you shift your mentality? And then you can go out and discover, because my intent is that I want everyone to learn to think about customers in a different way, right? And they can go off and get better and better at this on their own. It's not about coming back to me and, and reapplying um, a standard uh, rhetoric over and over again. This customer feedback thing, it, uh, it, it sounds like for most companies uh, that are asking these either big, broad questions uh, about, you know, sort of net promoter score type, type of thing or, or, the, um, or the very specific feature questions that the, the juice really isn't worth the squeeze. Is that fair? Yes. So let's just use net promoter score as an example. Okay, so I, I, we send out a mailing to all your podcast listeners. And you get back a net promoter score of, I don't know, eight. Let's just pick a number, right? Okay. From a business perspective, what are you doing with that information? <laughs> oh, we're going to build, you know, global campaigns around it. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Of course we're not. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I started my career as an entrepreneur at a tech company. Uh, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, you know, this was in the 90s. Do you, do you want to start a tech company? It's like you're right out of college. You're like, oh, yeah, sure. This will be six months. It'll be fun and crazy. And then, you know, it'll die. So it actually <laughs> it's still alive. It's still doing great. I think they're at 60 million or 70 million a year right now. Um, and I was there for 10 years. And I will tell you that the thing that people in business that, that are wonderful employees at successful companies don't understand is that every decision you make you have to really know whether that's going to do something to help your company grow. And there was, in, as an entrepreneur, there is no room for fluff, right? So let's go back to that net promoter score. 
what can I, what business decision can I make based on that information? Right. If I have a 10, yeah, okay, I can hand it to marketing and they'll make it pretty and promote it. But outside of that, right, what do I know? And if let's say on the other end of the spectrum, it's a, it's a two, right? Right. Everybody's attractive. If you didn't know that already, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, if you need a report to show you that as a CEO or a CMO or a C of any C person, you know, just quit. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Right. Tim, so, Tim, I think we might need to quit. I don't know. I, I think we're, we're given given the or, the net promoter score of, of behavioral grooves and that's not knowing what it is. Let's just not go. ask. Let's just start <laughs> there. there. Let's, let's put just, our head in the sand. There we go. Ask. Oh, what about what about culture? Let, let's you know, I, I teed up culture a little earlier because I'm kind of fascinated with where what role does culture play in this story overall? Oh, man, you know. Culture is such a, a weird word and, and a lot of people interpret it a different way. You know, you look at culture at one end of the spectrum and people think that's mission, vision, values. Check. We're done. On the other hand, you know, it's the, the DEI stuff and really getting into, you know, deep interpersonal things with employees. And honestly, I, I believe that everything is some moderation in between. Right. And Practically speaking, as a CEO of, let's say, you know, multi-billion dollar company, you're not going to be hands-on with every single employee, right? You maybe can, you know, touch them at one point in time throughout the year, but, you know, you're not going to have that intimacy. Uh, And what you need to do as a leader is establish the behaviors you want to see, not the, here's the, you know, vision, mission, values, and, you know, we're going to be honest. Uh, we're going to uh, speak up, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, nine times out of 10, heck, 10 times out of 10, all of that is trash, right? If you're not going to be honest, what, if I have to put honesty on the wall as a value to ensure that everyone is being honest, I mean, I'm our, I've already lost the battle, right? And actually, if you, if, I think in the book or, or at least in one of my articles, I noted that Enron had like, Honesty, communication, all that generic crap, and posted in their lobby, it didn't really do anything, did it? Right. So it goes back to behaviors, and people model other people's behaviors, and people will model leaders' behaviors. And so when we're talking about culture and we're talking about customers, you have to not only embody what you want that culture to be, but hire to and fire to support that culture. You have to communicate in a way that is reflective of the culture. And then you need to expose that to customers. Because if you think about the companies that you love the best, that you're most connected to, even if it's just one, you feel like you understand their culture, right? It's not just the marketing. It's not just the sales. It's not even just the product, right? You have a deeper emotional connection to them in a different way. And that's where culture sits. Hmm. I love this idea of culture. And, and you talk about uh, just in, in general that you, you're bringing a behavioral science perspective into some of the, the, the work that you're doing. How would you what do you think behavioral science brings to a business or in particularly to the customer perspective of businesses? How can what can businesses learn from a behavioral science lens? You know, I've been studying behavioral science for a while and, and really was fascinated by 
uh, you know, I, I got a minor in psychology in college, and this was kind of the, a, a flavor of that that it felt like it was a lot more actionable instead of just being a clinician. But the challenge with behavioral science is that there's kind of two parts. There's one is I can apply it tactically, mm-hmm. right? I can change this form. I can redesign this poster, et cetera, et cetera, and incrementally increase or decrease some behavior, right? And behavioral science is really sitting over here. I don't think that, especially in the United States, there's a strong understanding of how behavioral science can apply to the company at a higher level, at a strategic level, right? How do you translate that? And I believe that it's really tied much more back to culture and interpersonal communication. And I don't want to say that it's an opportunity to call people out, you know, let's say when they're bike shedding. But if everyone in the organization is trained and understands, you know, what these heuristics are, what these cognitive biases are, and can spot them in discussions, debates, meetings, you know, when you see somebody sandbagging, right, that you can help continue to develop and shape that culture in a way that's much more productive and gets rid of that layer of garbage that usually comes along with bigger organizations where we call it politics, but, you know, really it's just inefficiency, backstabbing, time wasting, posturing, uh, and, and it really harbors resentment for those people that are really trying to get something done in the company. Yeah. Nicely said. Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to switch over to, uh, towards the end of the book, you, you bring up a, a quote uh, about, uh, well, actually not a quote, but you talk about Beethoven as being this, this guy who at the point that he becomes deaf ends up composing some of the greatest music in his, in his lifetime. And, and, and you said that, um, he composed better after losing his hearing because he left the influences of others behind. So, of course, I wanted to bring it up because it's Beethoven and, and he's a fantastic musician. But I also wanted to bring it up because is there sort of this aspect of we're better off? Are, are, is it important in your thesis to learn the rules and then toss them? You know, it's important to be aware of the rules, but don't give them you know, carte blanche, mm. right? So any any company, culture, community, country, right? You need to have some cognizant awareness of, you know, what the rules are, right? And I say rules loosely. It could be, you know, social rules, et cetera. But this doesn't mean that those are fixed, nor that they cannot change. And in a company, you need to think about why the rule was established, right? And this goes back to behavioral science. Was this to truly change behavior? Was it to just really eliminate a hassle? Is it really actually legally driven, right? Where we don't want to be liable for something. So we put this rule in place, right? But it really doesn't make sense. And so that that questioning of those rules and understanding the history of those rules is important to then institute natural and logical and, you know, oh my God, this makes sense. Why didn't they do this before change in the company versus your own opinions, feelings. If you're new and you see something stupid and you go, well, that's stupid. Why the hell have they been doing that? Oh, they've been doing that for 20 (laughs) years. What the hell have they been doing? And, you know, that's the way I was when I was younger. 
And I had a, a great mentor, um, a former CEO of a global elevator and escalator company, say to me, when you're new in an organization and a leader, the first thing you need to do is look around and take in as much information as possible of the lay of the land. Don't change a thing for a year because you don't understand why those decisions were made, when they were made, what was the context, maybe the people have changed, maybe it's a financial thing, et cetera, et cetera. So in any organizational culture, the first thing you need to do is understand the why, which kind of goes back to the three W's, right? Yep. It's like understand that purpose before you just throw out a massive change. And too many CEOs come in like a bull in a china shop and say, hey, it's new, it's my time, I'm going to make all these changes. But the downstream impact of that on the culture and of course on the customers, because they're going to feel it at the end of the day, is sometimes massive. You'd also talk about Ron Johnson in the book, which kind of, I think, lends into this, right? He left Apple, went to JCPenney, and was fired 16 months later. So, <laughs> you know, was that, be help us understand, did, did that, was that because he put too much change in, he came in, and was that bull in the china shop? Were there other factors going in there? Help, help us understand your, your I, I think that that was a part of it, but I think Ron's problem was that he had a recipe mm. and he was like, this is the recipe. And this kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation. This is the recipe. This works. I'm going to go around and apply it here, 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 and here. And this recipe should work here at JCPenney's. There's no problem with that. The problem is he didn't understand that context, right? He didn't understand that those customers were constantly looking for deals. There was actually an emotional satisfaction. I mean, if we think about it, you know, when you're looking for a deal, right? And you find one, you're like, oh my God, yes, I got it, right? And his approach of a fixed price across the board, you know, was the total, it took away that, you know, feeling of success from those customers that had been doing that for decades, right? And so because he didn't understand that why, he didn't understand the current context, in addition to the fact that he thought, I've got the silver bullet and I'm just going to flop it down here and everything will be great and it's a lot easier and I don't have to think and I can just plow through it. Great. Why not? And it didn't really work. That That is, uh, it's a great observation on that. I'm, I'm glad that you, um, you included that in the book, Andrea. Uh, if uh, you were to be on a desert island for a year and you had to pick two musical artists' catalogs to take with you. You could take everything, take everything that they've ever written, recorded, all that kind of stuff. Which two musical artists would you take with you? Mm, I think that, you know what? I'm a little biased, and, I, and actually I'd only take one because of the breadth of the catalog. Because wow. The catalog um, okay. is Queen, right? <laughs> Going back to, the Going back to Freddie Mercury, there you go. Maybe a little Led Zeppelin, you know, sprinkled in. But uh, okay. and I said this because my my when I was little, like very very little, my mother worked from home. She was an illustrator uh, for a department store and, and did all the illustrations of the clothes for the newspaper when they printed, you know, those things in the newspaper. And she would play music as she was drawing, and she was obsessed with Queen. And so that every, <laughs> I remember the year, the album, the songs, you know, and, and, and I kind of grew up with that. So I've already listened to it, you know, pretty much for my, my, you know, half my life already. So another, another half on a desert island wouldn't be too bad. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, so it, it, not because of any cerebral reason, like all four of the band members have had n- number one hits or, you know, the diversity of, of their writing skills or anything. It's just you literally that is in it's sort of in your DNA. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually in the book, if you're looking through the footnotes again, there is a reference. Uh, I don't remember exactly what chapter, but it says, if you can guess this song, I'll buy you a beer. And I'll give you a hint. Oh. It's a queen song. It's oh, a queen song. Oh, no. How did I miss that? Oh, my oh. God. I feel terrible. So it's not, but it's not the name of the song. It's a, it's a lyric in a song. It's even harder. Oh. oh, wait a minute. Oh, you know what? Um, I, I do actually, I, I, re, I have, I have a vague memory of that. And of course I can't, uh, I, I tracked it down immediately. <laughs> oh, and it's just <laughs> killing me now that I'm, I can't remember. Where was oh, that? I don't know. Anyway, oh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Help us. Help us. I, I, I'm, uh, let's see. It is the why and the wherefore. <sighs> Thank you. I'm giving you so much here. I can't believe it. <laughs> God. Well, we'll have to buy you a beer at the Deadwood yes. next time we're down in Iowa City. Yes, we haven't figured out what song it is. We will. That will be over the beer at, at Deadwood. So Yes. Perfect. Yes. Andrea, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. This has been a real pleasure. This is awesome. Thank you guys so much. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Andrea, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our Iowa-informed brains. Okay, like you guys really dig that whole hawk. We're we're alums from the same university thing. That was kind of a big deal, wasn't it? Fight, fight, fight for Iowa. Okay, okay, Let okay. Every loyal <laughs> Iowan sing. Yeah, no, it's a, your alma mater. I mean. All right. I know it's probably rare. over probably overplayed that a little bit, but you know, hey, you know, there's not that many people that I get to talk with that uh, on the show that are alum right. of Iowa. So yeah, Kurt Lewin wasn't an alum, was he? He didn't. He no, didn't. he taught there. Yeah, yeah he taught, he there. taught okay. there. Yeah. So okay, and I never got to talk to him since he died before I di- I was born. I born. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, and he was but, only there for a couple of years, by the way. But no, I mean it's it's cool, and and you know she lives in the town where I grew up. And so all yeah, of those things. Yeah, that's that. It, it, honestly, those are those are it, Chaldini would say those are liking and unity kinds of things. You know yeah. that that uh, that end up persuading us in ways that we can't can't easily estimate. So uh, what, it's not that not that Andrea is a cool person, and I just you know clicked uh, with her. It was all it was these other factors. So I should just be. Like, it was oh. it was yes and not either. Oh or. okay okay okay. All of those things were happening. <laughs> what did you take away from our conversation with Andrea? What 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 was important to you? Well, I was awesome. I think that was the no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here here here's one thing. There's a difference between practice and theory. Uh-huh. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about this idea that what happens in the lab doesn't always translate well into, as you said in the intro, into the wild, as Dilip Solomon would say, right? That yeah. idea that yeah, measure, yeah. yeah, yeah, that we aren't necessarily able to take the you know study that was done with eighty university you know freshmen and apply that across the board 
in an organization or in our communities, et cetera. And so and I think not, there's a difference Not that we there. should, right? That's not, as we, in, in our conversation with Dilip and Nina about the in the wild stuff, not all lab work has to translate into into the real world. That it's That's okay. But certainly, Andrea wanted to emphasize this, like, don't get too hung up on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, it made me think of the old Yogi Berra quote of, you know, in theory, there is no difference between practice and theory. In practice, there is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yogi Berra had such great oh, lines. Man, I don't really know. Yeah. He, there's so much wisdom in that. And I just I just I just love it. What, what I think Andrea brought up, though, is that sometimes practitioners see things that theorists don't, that researchers don't, that they are so in the field, in what is actually going on. And if they're bright and observant and they're paying attention, then they can see a lot of anecdotal oh, yeah. kind of factors that you go, oh, Yes, this is what is going on. And I think that's really interesting. The one Mm -hmm. piece we didn't talk about is then how do you take those patterns that you see? And obviously you can use them from a business perspective. But is there a way that we can go back into the lab and say, you know, professor, can you take a look at this? Because this is what we're seeing. I think that would be a cool thing, too. Yeah, I also I, I like both of those sides, both it's both the sort of being available to the anecdotes and the variety as well as the patterns. But there's also, you know, if you can get a lot of practitioners, a lot of customer facing people in the organization to collect those data points, and then you put them together, I think there could be all kinds of benefits to organizations from that sort of, uh, you know, it's a data collection story. Well, what? You just send out a survey. (sighs) Eh, wrong answer. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> Come on. It's so much easier. You can send out a survey and get all those oh, data points God, that you I want, know, right? I know. I know. It's something that, that really struck me was the Andrea's question is why companies aren't doing more of this. Why don't Get, more getting more of their employees out in front of their customers? Exactly. Exactly. I and I um I worked for a company called Deluxe Corporation that was in the check printing business. Mm. And, uh, you know, back when dinosaurs ruled the earth. (laughs) But part of my training program as a young marketing dude was to spend a minimum number of hours during my onboarding with the customer service group to sit down, to plug in my headset next to the customer service rep's headset and listen for a minimum number of hours. And then for the first two years, I had to go back every quarter and make sure that I kept listening to customer. And the great thing about that was that I continued to get exposed to what do people say? What do the people who are paying for the product have to say? Uh, The bad news was that my observations were never aggregated in a way that got back to executives or product developers or anyone like that to actually do something about it. It ended up kind of ending with me, uh, yeah. which is which is a little bit regretful. But yeah, but it, yeah. it was still a great, it, it, it can be done and it has been done, but it can be done better. I, I can't get over the visual image of you as a young marketing dude 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm still trying to picture young? that. Yeah, a young, young marketing dude. I, I want to get you a t-shirt that says, I was a young marketing dude. <laughs> I think that would be cool. Um, anyway, no, to your point, to your point, you know, this idea that it has been done, it can be done, but there's there needs to be a way for companies to collect the information in a yeah. systematic manner because your your observations are fantastic. But your observations are one data point or a multitude of data points. And the other person who's listening in has their own right. set of data points and the others. Right. And there are patterns to be discovered that maybe you don't even see in your data in the points that you have. But when you put all of those pieces together, and I think companies do a really poor job of taking – oh. A, they do a poor job of getting their employees out in front of customers and talking to them and dealing with them and listening to them. But B, they do an even worse job of then taking that information and having a systematic way of analyzing it. And what if marketing was involved in that? What as as opposed to just oh having the God. product people? Like what what if the marketing people were were the recipients of those conversations and the and the amalgamation of that stuff? And all the young cool. marketing dudes could just put it all together. <laughs> it would be awesome. <laughs> Sorry, David Bowie is turning over in his grave. I, I think <laughs> the thought of that. What else, Kurt? What else struck you in our conversation? Well, I just think I I think to our point that we were talking about this idea that. Hey, companies should be putting more employees, right? Make it a practice, build trust among coworkers, you know, shared knowledge, shared experiences that they have. Yeah. You can use it to develop better solutions, um, et cetera, all those things. Yeah. But before you just putting employees in front of customers, I think you need to also put together a training for those employees to teach them what to look and listen for, right? Don't just, you're not just out there observe. You were just put on a headset and yeah. listening in, right? I didn't have a guide, no. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, think about the difference if you would have had a guide. Here are the things to be thinking about, particularly as a marketing person. Yeah. Uh, how are people saying this? What are they thinking about these types of things? What's going on there? So it can help focus your attention and, and allow you to be purposeful in, in your, your thoughts. Now, granted, sometimes there's a, a you know great reward that comes from just kind of having a broad, open-minded explore, exploration, but yep, yep. there's others. But also, like, what are the questions to ask? It, you talked about fear, you know, this idea of how, how to overcome the fear, the trepidation that you have with this. And then in particular, what do you need to do with that information to share it back with the organization? Uh, exactly. I, I, I love that, actually. There are with a little bit of Rohit Bhargava is kind of striking me, mm. you know, with the, you've got, you've collected the data now organizing, you know, go back and look at it, organize it. Again, he, you know, he just put all those articles in that folder file and then kind of yeah. taking a big look at it, put all the data in a, in a single repository and then, you know, take everybody to have an opportunity to kind of come in, sort, find the patterns, find the, find the trends. Yeah. Those are interesting pieces. All yeah, right. Absolutely. So I think that probably wraps us up. What do you think? That wraps uh, it up for our that conversation, works. Andrea. Yeah, yeah okay. that, that works for me. I, I think it's good to just revisit the, you know, the work that practitioners are doing, but do it through a behavioral science lens. You know, there's so many great examples of behavioral science principles that exist in the world, but naming them and studying them, you know, we, if we're more intentional about using them, I think businesses can be more customer focused. They could be, you know, 
actually stronger and more successful enterprises by doing that. Yeah, and exactly. And I think Andrea's comments about getting more employees in front of customers does have a ton of great things like building better relationships between customers and salespeople, spending more time in the field that can make their problem solving easier, faster, more effective, might even give customers a fresh view of the way that they perceive the company. That you know, if one of the accountants comes along on a sales call and is introduced properly. <laughs> with the with the proviso of being introduced properly. <laughs> <laughs> and and being trained. Like the accountant yes. needs to be trained right. about what they're doing out there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. It, it's uh, it's really important uh, for everybody in the company to have some direct experience with customer feedback. I think yeah. that's kind of the message. Yeah, and customer feedback isn't bad. I loved your your example, right? And we just have to be aware of the limitations that go with things like surveys and net promoter scores. <laughs> and yeah. the way of getting around that is... You know, and Grant, they have their purpose. They have their sure. their time and place, but they're not the be all end all of this. And so we have to get out there and build relationships, build relationships yeah. with your customers, learn from them, listen to them, watch for patterns, as Andrew says, and those and use those observations to build a stronger brand, a stronger product, better marketing materials, better corporate, you know, oh, policy yeah. overall, all that. And, and by the way, listeners, we want your feedback. I'm just going to say that out we loud. want to talk with you yes we do we love getting reviews that love us up yes we do uh but more importantly your reviews and ratings actually factor into the way the algorithms are built that shares behavior groups with people who are just browsing for podcasts so right. if they're they're not just looking your reviews will actually get behavior groups in front of more people yeah and to that we we really do want to hear from you um, if you have a suggestion, if you have a comment, if you like or don't like us, we, we Let us obviously know. like the like part, but we also want to know the things that we don't aren't doing as well. Let us know. We, we want to hear that. We want to we want to have a conversation with you, our listeners, because that truly is the piece that we can take to heart here. And so take a moment, leave us a quick rating or a brief review, you know, send us an email, send us a Twitter note you know, we'll, we'll love it and we'll respond. Absolutely. And with that, we hope that our discussion with Andrea helps you this week to go out and find your groove.